I, um, I had a friend in, in seminary who, when it came to that day in, in our systematic theology class to talk about um, eschatology, which is just a big word for just saying the study of, of end things or end times, when it, when it came to that day, he really struggled. He said, why are we, why are we talking about these you know, stratified theological things that we only have the, the slightest glimpse of beginning to understand in Scripture? What, what does that have to do with us today? And I believe there's probably many of us in this room who've asked that same question when we talk about um, things that are yet to come. We, we say, what does that have to do with me today? However, Karl Barth, who is probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century, he said this about eschatology, about the end times. He said that thinking about the end times is probably the most practical thing that could be thought. It's the most practical thing that could be thought. The simple fact of the matter is you can't know how to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going, right? Nobody goes on to get directions in Google Maps without a destination. You have to know where you're going to know how to get there. And so it's my prayer that today we will consider these things about where we're going. But do so in such a way that it enables us to see the path to get there. And so we've come now to the last sermon in our sermon series, What Wondrous Love Is This? We have been tracing um, the great redemptive, redemptive acts of God from creation until today, new creation. And we've seen the fall, fallen human beings. We have seen the promise through the prophets. We have seen the promise realized in Jesus Christ. And then today we will look at the promise yet to come. Creation and new creation. Hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, um, you can, I think, follow along in the screen. Um, but, but if you have a Bible or a Bible app, um, go to Revelation chapter 21. Now, this is the very end. This is almost the end of the end. Revelation chapter 21 should be pretty easy to find. And we're going to look today at verses 1 to 7 and consider this glorious ending to our story. So the first thing we want to talk about new creation might be a little surprising, um, but in many ways, new creation will be the same as this creation. Let's just take a look. Verse 1. This is John, by the way. John's in exile on the island of Patmos, and, and Jesus has come to him in a vision and is showing him these great things, and now he's showing him the end of the story. And so this is what John sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It passed away. Now, you read that and you think, okay, the most logical reading of this passage is that this earth will be no more, replaced with a new earth, right? These heavens will be no more, replaced with a new heaven. But I don't think that's quite right. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think what we want to say about the new creation is that the world is to come, the new creation, will be renewed and restored. Think about it this way. Think about God's work in our lives. In, um, in Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, If anyone is in Christ, behold, 
he, she, is a new creation. If any of us are in Christ, we are a new creation. Now that doesn't mean we cease to exist like we were before we knew Christ. It just means we exist in a different way. In a changed way. In a way that is being transformed. Now, often we use relatively violent language to talk about this. We say our old self has died, right? We say that we have been crucified with Christ. But it doesn't mean literally our old self is gone. It means we're being transformed. Even when we die and our bodies decompose back to dust, one day these very same bodies will be brought back to life. It'll be the same body. It'll be different. You'll all be much more handsome and beautiful. But it'll be the same body. It'll work perfectly, but it'll be the same. That's what it's like with creation. The old creation is dying. It's passing away. It's being crucified so that it can be transformed into a new creation. And so we should expect it in many ways to be similar And so look, if we think back to Genesis 2, right? God's got Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden and he gives them a charge. He wants them to cultivate it. He wants to use creation for the flourishing of life. And so even after the fall, when we get into Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and we see this great and terrible expansion of sin, we still see God's creatures, um, God's men and women made in his image, using creation For the flourishing of mankind. Also for evil, but at the same time for some flourishing. And so, for instance, Cain, the murderer, was also a great builder of cities. He was a great architect. We have Jubal, right? Jubal is the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. There's no word for lyre and pipe in Genesis 1 and 2. But we see it as a development of creation. Music and instruments and and culture, these are good things. And so there's a dynamic creation even in the midst of sin. And now we sit here today and there's no reason to think that God has changed his initial plan. There's no reason to think that God has changed his plan. There's no reason to believe that one day when we go to heaven... We'll be sitting on clouds and playing harps. No. For God to abandon his plan, on some level, would give victory to Satan. God's not going to come back with a new creation and say, Okay, that first creation was very good, but really this one, this one's very, very good. It's okay this time. That's not how it works. God is renewing And restoring his very good creation that sin helped to bring down. He's renewing it and restoring it back to its original intent from the very beginning. And so I think we can say in many ways the new creation is the same. However, and thank God, new creation is also very different. It is very different. It will fulfill much of God's original purposes. It will fulfill all of them, his original purposes for creation Yet it will be very different because the only creation that we know now is a creation marred by sin, by death, and by evil. And those things will be no more in God's new creation. So three things let's notice about the new creation. First one is this. Uh, Take a look again at verse 1. 
Um, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Look at this. And the sea was no more. That's a strange thing to say. The sea was no more. And for us, low country folk with salt water in our blood, the prospect of the sea being no more makes us want to think twice about this, perhaps. But let's think about it slightly differently. In this type of literature, Hebrew apocalyptic literature, the sea was the source of evil and demons. Okay? In fact, we read in Revelation that Satan himself is, is cast back into the sea, into the lake of fire. And so certainly you would want to seal that bad boy up. You don't want him coming back. And that's what we see here. The sea is no more is imagery, right? For, for Satan and evil being destroyed and gone, not only is destroyed and gone, but never to come back. There will never be another serpent in God's creation once Jesus has returned. And so for the sea to be no more, it's not necessarily literal. It might be, but it's not necessarily so. But it's illustrating the fact that in the new creation, evil has been defeated. In fact, that is one, the huge difference between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21 is that there will be no more tempting and sin of God's people. The very possibility for evil and sin and death is destroyed in God's new creation. So evil will be gone. Secondly, in the new creation, God will dwell with his people. Let's read verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell with his people in the new creation. You remember back in the Garden of Eden, what did God and Adam and Eve like to do? They would walk together, right? In the cool of the garden, they would, they would take walks together. What a satisfying and delightful thing that sounds like. And then sin had, had banished mankind from the presence of God. And, and what this is saying then is that mankind and God will dwell together once more. For that to happen, sin must be gone. The, the things that we have done that have driven a wedge between us and God must be forgiven. For us to dwell with God again. In fact, God is making us into a holy people. The beautiful bride of Christ. Look at that. Behold, I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, that's us. That's us being prepared for our husband, Christ. Okay, so you go to a wedding, right, and the organist hits the organ, and the, the music's loud and dramatic, and everybody stands up, and, and the doors fling open, and everybody turns, and what do they see? The bride. And everybody's looking at the bride. But I would encourage you, make your first look to be the groom. And without a doubt, every groom is almost knocked over by the beauty of his bride. That's how beautiful we're becoming in Christ. 
that one day when we are presented to him as his bride, he will be blown away by how glorious we are. Not by anything we've done, but how God has transformed us and created us. And we will dwell with him in this heavenly kingdom. In the new creation, God's pe- God will dwell with his people. Third, the new creation, and this is quoting Tolkien, um, in the new creation, everything sad will come untrue. <clears throat> everything sad will come untrue. Read verse 4 with me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything sad will come untrue. Friends, we're, we're here this morning, all of us. In fact, we wake up every morning <clears throat> bearing the burden of tragedy. We're bearing the burdens of tragedy. Sometimes it's public tragedy, sometimes it's private tragedy, but it's weighing on us. It's weighing on us. And so we read about a child losing her life in a car accident. We hear about marriages falling apart, parents slowly dying, jobs lost, houses foreclosed. Many of you are sitting here this morning and you're going through your own private hell. And God has a word for that, friends. That this suffering we experience now, this suffering that we see in this world, it too will come under the judgment of God. And at the last day, I don't think we're going to see how all of this suffering was somehow necessary. Like God somehow needed us to, to suffer to accomplish his purposes. No, God doesn't need for us to, to suffer. He weeps with us when we suffer. But one day, we will see that suffering is being redeemed. It is, is, is we're being redeemed. That suffering is being judged as false and damnable. That those of us who have endured suffering will actually be raised from the dead. That that, that little girl killed in a, in a car accident will be raised from the dead to the glory of God. And friends, we will dwell in a kingdom where these things are no more. Where there is no more suffering and no more mourning, no more death. We'll dwell in a kingdom and we'll sit before the throne of a king who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Friends, in new creation, all the sad things will come untrue. And finally, we see that this new creation comes with an invitation. It comes with an invitation. Um, if we go down to verses 5, it says this. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, there's a shift here in, in time 
God goes and John goes from talking about things that will happen to things that, that have happened, from what God will do to what God has done and is doing. And we see then God sitting on the throne now, making all things new now. We see that Christ's reign is true right now in the present, that he is the Alpha and the Omega here and now. Now, God has always been sovereign over his creation, even the rebellious parts. But in Christ, the battle for evil is won once and for all. It's one in that pivotal moment in history, right, that Father Tripp spoke about last week. We'll relive in our worship in the Holy Week services. That pivotal moment of Christ's death and resurrection where evil and sin is defeated once and for all. Where sins are forgiven once and for all. Where God is united to his people once and for all. And so this future hope that we have is actually grounded in a very present and real reality that happened at a specific time in our history. And so it comes then with an invitation. This future grounded in this present reality comes with an invitation. First, to those who are thirsty. End of verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Without payment. Many of you here this morning are thirsty. You're thirsty from a life of separation from God. You're you're parched. You're tired of deceiving yourself and deceiving others about who you really are. You're tired of the facade that you put up week in and week out. You're beaten down by suffering and pain and tears. And you are longing for an oasis in the middle of a scorched desert. And Christ says to you, To the thirsty, I have the water of life. And that water comes without payment. Without payment. Don't offer anything to Christ for the water of life. Don't come to him with your good works in exchange for his water of life. Come to him out of desperation and longing and desire. And he will give you the water of life. And finally, there's a word for those seeking to endure. This is a word of endurance. Verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Friends, we are running a long and tiring race, and God is calling us to persevere, to keep the goal in sight, this heritage of the new kingdom. That's our heritage. That's our inheritance. And so we persevere and we come back time and time again to the spring of the water of life. And we long one day for that place where we will finally be home with Christ and his new creation for the glory of God. And so God calls out to his new creation or to his creation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let us pray.